0: Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty, Talking Design, coming to you from RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here today with Michael Howard, who's a landscape architect and lecturer in landscape architecture in the School of Architecture and Design at RMIT University. Thanks morning, so much Stephen. for thanks so much for coming in, Michael. You're welcome. Good morning. You've had an interesting career in landscape in landscape architecture, landscape design. I think a lot of people, maybe before we start, What's the difference between... How do you
1: differentiate them?
0: Yeah, people say, you know, landscape architecture, landscape designer, landscaper, which is a horrible mm-hmm.
1: term. There's uh, certainly a lot of terms, but the difference is landscape architecture is a professional term, so the word architecture is a profession. It requires a five-year accredited qualification. And when we talk about landscape designer, garden designer, landscape construction person, we're talking more about a a, a trade, a trade that's come out of either a certificate qualification or a qualification from an apprenticeship. And so generally you'd understand landscapers as construction people who might build the work of a landscape architect, and the other ones generally operate in residential as opposed to large Mm. commercial civic projects.
0: So before we start, Michael, what's your background for people who don't know you?
1: So I started... Out from high school as a horticulturalist studying horticulture at Burnley many, many years ago. And I worked buying for nurseries for people like Paul Bangay and Jenny Walker. And basically we were accommodating the upper end of the residential market or the domestic market. And then after many years of frustration, I moved into landscape architecture and started landscape architecture as a mature age student Mm. and did the course here at RMIT. And then I worked in the industry with John Patrick, who you might know from Gardening Australia and who does a lot of heritage work, mm. um, and another company called Out from the Blue who do contemporary swimming pools before becoming a lecturer at RMIT.
0: Why were you frustrated in your gardening role?
1: I think, I think I'd, I don't know, wouldn't say I'd conquered it, but I think I was looking for more intellectual content without sounding like, you know, that that doesn't exist in that part of the industry because I think it does, but I was looking for someone who would potentially hold a different conversation about landscape.
0: What does the conversation tend to be?
1: Well, in the gardening world, it tends to be talking about referring to style. So you understand landscape through a French-type garden or a a type of garden that might be Italian or Japanese or whatever else, whereas landscape architecture tends to look for a whole lot of larger external influences that aren't necessarily just based on an origin of a style.
0: So we're looking at ideas behind the landscape.
1: So ideas and concepts that start to look spatially. So it's it's not necessarily about the materiality that governs what the space is like, which is, I think, how it's cruxed within... The domestic industry, but I think it's about how that space starts to tell you what's appropriate.
0: Michael, I'm interested in the relationship between architecture and the landscape and what concerns me at the moment and and perhaps maybe it's just in my mind rather than it being uh, widespread, is that people build a contemporary home and then they either run out of money, so they don't do anything, or when they do something, they do a very French provincial style, mm. boxy, hedgy thing that kind of looks inappropriate to the architecture. Why is that?
1: Well, I think that's where there's a differentiation between the practices. So. As I was suggesting earlier, there's an understanding of landscape through landscapers that is about the French or the Italian garden. And there's an understanding of an architect about spatial, spatiality of a landscape and spatiality of the building. And I think there's a disconnection between those two things. So we build our houses and we trust our architects, but there's not an awareness of landscape architects as a profession yet to understand how those two things come
0: together seamlessly. Why isn't that, why isn't there that understanding? I think we're
1: just emerging. I think, you know, landscape architecture in Australia probably only has a history of maybe 50 or 60 years at the most. I mean, in the world, it was discovered by Frederick Law Olmsted back in the 1860s. So it's a new profession, whereas we understand architecture of having a profession of many hundreds of years. But it's changing very rapidly. There's, you know, Melbourne has the most landscape architecture firms. There's probably 60 practices in Melbourne. They're not large. Some of them might have at the most 80 practitioners. But there's just not that understanding that if you employ an architect, maybe you should consider employing a landscape architect at the same time.
0: Um, It's interesting, Michael, that Getting back to this uh, idea of employing a, a, a landscape architect, I'm still not clear why people uh, well, think are mixing, mixing it up.
1: Well, I think they understand residential homes as having a garden. And I think when they see the word landscape architect, they don't necessarily make that connection with garden. They make that connection more with larger civic projects or with larger commercial projects.
0: The other thing I was going to mention is, is it a a problem, is it one of the reasons why there aren't more contemporary domestic landscape uh, projects is that many landscape architects prefer doing large commercial projects and therefore find the smaller projects just irritating?
1: Well, I think in the past it was governed by fees. And so paying for fees for a design for a residential garden is not particularly a new thing. It was very... It sort of had its emergence in the 80s, I suppose, when we went crazy for spending money on gardens and houses. And I think landscape architects charge, you know, a professional fee. So
0: Is it comparable to an architect's fee? It's probably
1: pretty much the same, maybe slightly cheaper because there's a lot of new graduates in the industry. So you might pay... $150 an hour for a landscape architect for a senior person and you might pay $65 to $125 an hour for a junior landscape
0: architect. And generally what's, you know, the I mean generally an architect might charge between 10 and 15 percent of the total project for an architect. mm, So if you
1: imagine an architect's fee might come out to $30,000 for a $300,000 house I suppose, mm. a landscape architects fee might come out to $10,000. So they're still quite cheap but most people would expect to spend you know, somewhere near $20,000 on a house garden at the moment, I suppose, for planting and soft landscape what, works.
0: For, for, you know, for cynics out there who say, oh, look, I can do my own garden and I don't need a landscape architect, what are the benefits do you see?
1: Well, the benefits is a landscape architect understands space. So it's a spatiality. It's how you design with space. What does that space bring to the experience of the landscape? So what's it like to walk down a sideway and how do you treat a sideway rather than just assuming it's a service area? How do you treat a ha- the front of a house and consider the facade, the streetscape and what are the requirements of actually occupying that front of, the ha- of that house? And then how does the backyard operate? Does it operate in a similar manner to the front yard or do you differentiate the backyard? So it's from how the front? people
0: use the outdoor space just as much as how they use the indoor space? Definitely, yeah. Absolutely. The other thing, Michael, I'm interested in is how landscapes changed. Uh, I mean, we're going back to more a stylistic approach, but in the 80s for instance, we were looking very much at the White Garden, the Vivian, The Sissinghurst Garden, isn't it? uh, Vita Sackville West? Sackville West and uh, very white you know, great gardens at night but not particularly exciting during the day. What If we're looking at how are gardens changing, I mean, obviously the drought conditions have made a big difference too. Well,
1: I think the drought's made a huge... Because basically what happens is we weren't allowed to water our gardens anymore. Those that had lots of money started putting bores into their gardens. Mm. And at $70,000 for a bore, that really limited it to a certain number of people that might... Decide to do that, but I think what's happening now is that we're actually emerging into a greater interest of plants. So the drought's broken, we've got rain, we've got full water tanks, Mm. water's still an expense that's emerged out of the drought, that's still something that you know most people would consider when they turned a hose on whether they'd pour water onto the garden. But as a result, there's been a lot of research and sort of self selection, I suppose, of plants that actually provide floral interest. They have big bold flowers that are actually being used again and so we're moving away from the grasses and the texture of landscape plants and of landscape materials back to something that's perhaps more voluptuous. Mm -hmm. So the hydrangea, rhododendron, magnolia sort of sweeter plants is again having interest but those Mm -hmm. plants have been bred to be perhaps a little bit more resistant to
0: drought. Mm Oh, I'm so relieved, Michael, because I've just planted magnolias and rhododendrons in my garden. <laughs> I think that's the other thing, is that for someone who's just had a garden after 10 years of being in an apartment, I've really become quite uh, excited about some of the plants. Um, grandparents used to have in gardens in the 50s, and... You know, gardens used to be very much um, quite, as you said, very voluptuous and very Mm. exciting. And people used to spend hours in the garden. And then all of a sudden, they became style features. So you had yuccas down a pathway. So do you see a reemergence of almost the 50s coming through again? I'm
1: not sure what style it is because the grass landscape is arts and crafts. It's American arts and crafts. And that's where Van Sweden and the likes of those landscape artists is where the whole grass landscape came from. And in Australia we make a connection to the bush garden. So, you know, the pebble thing which we've seen all over the world is slowly dwindling we're going back to wanting rich and voluptuous soils. Um, and we're looking more at bold foliage materials rather than just having the soft grasses. So I think... I think it's a new style that's emerging, but it Mm. certainly piggybacks on a lot of things. And I think, you know, we haven't forgotten the 80s. The Mm. 80s were a great period of design Mm. and a great period of just crazy spending for projects. And I think, you know, the amount of money around that's being spent on some projects is sort of warranting that these sort of styles are being reintroduced.
0: One um, term that must really annoy a landscape architect is low maintenance, because it's become almost like no thinking, uh, minimal minimal attendance mm. and almost blankness, almost this void.
1: Well, the low, the low maintenance seems to suggest that there's no dynamism within the garden. So in other words, there's not a season that needs to be attended to. So if we think about roses and hydrangeas, they need to be attended to at certain periods of time. Low maintenance suggests that the plants don't actually change. They grow to a certain stage and then it remains static. So I think... Isn't what, that boring? What's the most frustrating thing? Of course, the most frustrating thing is that, you know, you need to embrace the seasons. That, you know, part of the idea of importing a landscape, um, condition from another country or, and doing that through plant material is the fact that we actually get change. We get deciduous trees. We get colour in leaves that aren't just green.
0: So you see a return to more interest, obviously. To
1: horticulture, I think. So, you know, Edna Walling and people like that, some of their sort of Edna, clever players.
0: For people who don't know Edna Walling, most people Australian, do. Strain,
1: famous Strain garden designer piggybacked on the back of Gertrude Jekyll out of um, the UK. But 1920s. Basically, 1920s, 1930s, Bickley Vale out in Bark. But basically an understanding of plants as layers and an understanding that each layer was activated at certain times of the year, and that's where the interest in the garden lay. So there's always
0: something to look at. Always
1: something happening.
0: Michael, how do you actually go about choosing your landscape architect? Because, you know, it's not well documented. A no. land, An architect, for example, at architects in Australia particular are well uh, published so you can uh, look to any magazine and see something yeah. you like. How do you go about choosing a landscape architect?
1: Well I think most landscape architects are fairly web, web savvy at the moment I suppose. There's also our professional Institute, the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects and so if you go onto that website for ALA you can actually look at all the awards. ALA well, stands for? Australian Institute of Landscape Architects. So if you go onto the webpage there's all the awards and there's a section for residential awards that different offices around Australia have won. So that's one way of understanding what sort of work they do. But also just Googling landscape architect and Googling residential gardens and see which landscape architects actually um, have an interest in doing residential gardens because not all of them do.
0: Who would you say you know, without sounding like an ad, but who are some of the people that well, are know, pushing think, the boundaries of landscape well, architecture? Well, I think there's a
1: couple of offices in Melbourne. I think Aspect Landscape Architects do beautiful work out of Collingwood. I think Taylor Cullody Lethleen out of Carlton do very beautiful work. And then there's also Track Landscape Architects in Richmond that do work of a certain style. So again, Domestic and commercial? Domestic and commercial.
0: Okay.
1: So that's interesting. Stephen, can I ask you a question? Yes. Why didn't you use Landscape Architect?
0: Well, I suppose I didn't use a landscape architect, a because of budget. So I'm guilty as like anyone else uh, who, you know, renovates a house and then very little money left over. I suppose I I'd been in an apartment for 10 years and missed a garden, having a garden, and so I was really keen to try my own thing. To and I suppose an experiment. I experiment and I think the thing is because I have seen so many gardens that I haven't liked and I think I mentioned to you, a lot of them become just style, style yeah, yeah. things. You and know, static. And static. And so the plants that I actually, as a child, my father planted that I was just really keen to have in my garden. I so
1: think that's a beautiful thing about landscape is that plants have particular connections or they have particular identities and that yeah. identity isn't just its scientific name yeah. it's also cultural identity that belongs to memories yeah. as a child yeah. or memories of other yeah. countries or holidays or whatever else yeah. and so the thing about landscape is that it doesn't have to be permanent it's something that can be changed around yeah. with certain periods of time and so there's an opportunity to invest in actually playing with games yeah. like how you deal with the cultural balance. I mean of plants.
0: Michael the other thing is I thought if it didn't work um, I know people in the industry I could ask their advice or employ someone to do it. If it was a complete flop I'd say look I'm obviously not mm, coping mm. but I think um, I, I think it's, it's important to be qualified but I think you know you can have a, you can try things yourself and there are people Definitely. out there you can speak I would say my frustration was you know a lot of people in the nursery business were challenging in getting plants that I mm. wanted and I found that the most frustrating thing and maybe if a landscape architect would take all that frustration out
1: Well, I think what's happened is we've come out of a drought. We've come out of a period where nurseries are struggling. Nurseries don't have the range of plants Mm. that we probably see in books. And I think we're moving out of that drought so that the nursery range is increasing because... Mm. Nurseries are reactionary industries. In other words, if people don't buy white iceberg roses or moss white birches for a certain period of time, they actually don't become available. So it's not until you start to ask for these things that people start exactly. to grow them. Because they have a shelf life similar to food, and if they're not sold within a certain period of time, generally they're then either discounted and gotten rid of or they're not grown again and thrown out.
0: Michael, I was going to ask you, in terms of uh design in in Australia, we, there's a certain, you know, I think there's quite a strong signature. I think, you know, whether it's furniture or architecture, th- there's an element of humour that comes through these professions. Do you think landscape architecture has an element of humour, or is it something that is just not there yet?
1: I don't think we're yet there yet. I'd love to say we've got, we've got humour, Stephen, without a doubt, but the humour's in the office. It doesn't play out in the landscape yet. Why is that? People... I think we're just still finding our feet. I mean, we're slow with landscape. It's a conservative part of the, you know, of the industry. And there's not a lot of people that are willing to experiment because they tend to have a, a fixed identity, I suppose, about what they think their garden looks like. Mm. So I think architecture's got that experimentation, whereas landscape, we're just getting there. I mean, there's, there's some beautiful things happening, you know, like we're using charcoal as a mulch now. We're using, Mulch, glass as a mulch, we're starting to think as mulch. broken down mulch, yeah. A lot of the blue glass and the yellow glasses and the white glasses that are around. We're using dyed mulches, which, you know, are being used as a patination, yeah. like in a manner that yeah. Burley Marx would, yeah. you know, think about a, a colonnade in Brazil or Rio de Janeiro. And so there's that sort of play, but I think it's still fairly conservative to what architects are getting away with. Architects, you know, th- there's a certain client that's a lot more experimental in their architecture, but I don't think it carries into their landscape yet.
0: Well, I'm seeing that a lot. I, I think and one example is when you see people moving from a large uh, family home in the suburbs to an apartment on the fringe of town, and you see the type of gardens going to some of these high-rise developments. They're puffball trees, mm. you know, clipped toperies. And you think, here's a contemporary new high-rise apartment building. Why is it they've got? box hedges leading you into the front entrance why is that
1: well, there's a... It is insecurity. It's a cleanliness thing. I think there's something about, you know, there's a landscape fear about leaves blowing everywhere, and I think there's a fear of trees because of the structural damage with trees, and I think mm. trees make up most of the problems in landscape in lifting mm. foundations and things like that.
0: So people don't want risk.
1: So they don't want risk. So they're there's, there's steering to the safe sort of opportunities of landscape, I suppose, which is a shame.
0: One comment I had from someone who's not in the industry and she has a Victorian house, and she said, Oh, I'm getting... I want a very structured garden. I need to be ordered. Is, and so I is that
1: formal? Is that what oh, we it used a formal, to call a formal? Formal
0: garden. She wants box hedges everywhere, and she said, "Look, I'm a very busy person, and and I feel I, if I have a structured garden, it will help me feel structured." I find that was a very strange comment. Well, it's sort of a control thing isn't it yeah. because when you think about it you know you want to come
1: home and know what your landscape's going to look like so there's there's that thing where there's where you don't sort of take the risk of coming home and knowing that a season has actually changed so today's the first day of spring and so the yeah. wonderful thing about that is that you know it initiates a whole lot of different things in the landscape yeah. um and they're the sort of things we need to celebrate but horticulture is a little bit on the back burner at the moment yeah. so in other words we're not we wouldn't think about things like Edna Wallingwood in the sense that, you know, the daffodils come up and flower through the hydrangeas and then they die down and the hydrangeas start to flower. So, so there's the that symphony. beautiful layering of
0: things here. Yeah. Now, here's a question for you, Michael. What's your garden like? I've
1: got a beautiful garden, Tell me about it. Well, one of the things I do with landscape is that one of the problems with landscaping, especially residential gardens, I suppose, is that we tend to echo our boundaries. So in other words, we stand at our back door, we look out into the garden, and we see paling fences or some sort of fence around the outside. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I tend to do is foreshorten those boundaries, so I bring trees in from the boundaries and so I start to set up a play between what actually the boundary of the property is and what its spatial boundary is.
0: So it looks as in a sense as if the property goes on indefinitely?
1: It's it's confuses that sort of issue about boundary. But the property I live in is an old scout hall. We don't have any backyard, we only have a front yard. And so we're very much on the public view in the street. We've got a tall fence. We've got a large water feature that runs about six point eight meters off a line that's sort of an invisible line that projects out from the front door. Mm. So when you walk down our hallway, you sort of look straight out across this water feature. And so the surface of the water is sort of activated by the east-west nature of that water feature as well. And then there's a series of palms, Australian native palms, that cut across that Mm. in a manner of juxtaposition, I suppose. And then there's more typical plants like birches and pear trees and vegetable gardens. And because we've got a number of kids, there's trampolines and... Playgrounds and all of those sort of things that need to go with it. So, it's I wouldn't call it a particular style. It's very eccentric in in manners. It reflects
0: its owners, as I suppose. The other thing I was going to ask you, Michael, is how does Australian uh, landscape architecture? differ from european or
1: yeah it's a big I mean, it's question hard.
0: is it or is it just a silly question is it just a matter of no, everything it's not a silly question is, is it I just that we just follow whatever happens overseas? in
1: the 90s we were mimicking without a doubt but now that there's a whole
0: mimicking what mimicking
1: what the european contemporary landscape so we looked at the work for, out of barcelona and the netherlands and we we're very much interested in how they were dealing with space so paving was a certain geometrical shape we'd lost the serpentine Form that we'd sort of borrowed from the English garden back in the 1980s, where we sort of talk about the natural winding garden bed edge or the natural winding path. And the form of a garden bed and the path system that was coming out of the Netherlands and the Barcelona was very much geometric. So, right angle corners but with softened edges, almost, you know, a 50s window frame, I suppose, with a mm-hmm. curve in it. Um, lots of crushed rock that would come out of a quarry, fairly hard, stark um, mono-planting. So in other words, not a range of plants we might understand out of the English garden, but a mass planting of whatever plants thing. that might have been. And I think what was interesting about the Australian landscape is we borrowed this form, but we applied our own landscape plants to it. So if you mm. think about beautiful things like Banksias, is when the wind blows, the white of their leaves underneath starts to mm. shine. So it was an added quality from the Australian landscape that we were able to bring in and to what, what was these the sort of landscapes.
0: Michael, what do you think is emerging now with the Australian?
1: Well, I think we're softening up and we're looking for a reaction against this, and so we're going back to planting material that, again, is a bit softer. We're still very much in a palette of natural materials, and in natural materials I mean timber is a huge sort of, you know, material for building benches, facades, fences. So we've steered away from steel that we were using perhaps five, ten years ago. Much more organic. A lot lot more organic and a lot softer and sort of, you know...
0: An ex- an Almost evocative of the 70s?
1: Yeah, I think so. So the Elva-Elto Elva, sort of Finland sort of wooden facade in architecture is being brought into landscape.
0: Oh, lovely. What's, what do you find the most challenging thing about landscape architecture? Is it the fact that people call you a landscapist or a landscape no. designer or...
1: I think I've spent 10 years talking to my barber and convincing him that I don't own spades and bobcats. But the most interesting thing and the most challenging thing about landscape is that we have to deal with this notion of time. So in other words, if you imagine the botanical gardens in Melbourne were finished and the whole lot was planted, it's not going to have the sort of spatiality that it's designed for until it's perhaps 10 or 20 years of age. So in other words, we plant a tree, but that tree is only, you know, perhaps 500 millimetres off the ground because it doesn't have that sort of growth on it as yet and so we've got to wait for that time for the spatiality to actually be brought into the landscape.
0: That's very interesting Michael because one of uh, uh, a landscape she's actually calls herself a landscape artist and someone who I'm uh, very um, uh, you know respectful of her work is Mel Ogden and she talks about the landscape in terms of very long periods, even longer than 10 years, sometimes, you know, 50, 100 years. And she really plans for that type. Is it a problem just in Australia that we have very short, short attention span? We want immediacy. We want something now. We want the house finished. We want the landscape. Oh, that
1: in. definitely. I mean, the thing about plants is that, you know, people will spend maybe large amounts of money on a single tree or a collection of trees as established trees. But you just have to be patient with landscape. And the thing is that, you know, I invariably hear this thing where, well, I'm not going to be around when that tree actually grows to its genetic It's selfish, isn't it? But the problem is, you know, we have to understand trees as having heritage value as well. And the interesting thing about trees is they bridge a whole lot of landscape styles. So trees that were planted in the 1930s and the 1920s that are maturing now, whether they be European or Australian trees, have actually seen a number of landscape types and styles move across the ground plan, I suppose. So, you know, the cottage garden of the 1980s and the Mediterranean garden into the 90s stone and grasses gardens should still have had the same tree framework overhead, potentially but quite often we just get frustrated and we lose patience and we cut those trees down and so unfortunately that whole notion of time is quite frustrating for those people that own gardens I suppose as much for those people who design them.
0: Michael you said that people can find out more by going on to the internet and the Ala looking at the Australian Institute of uh, Landscape Architects. But if they're just... What are the other forms that people can look at? Uh, gardens, apart from visiting nurseries, which gives them an idea of plants, where, where are the type well, of publications that actually show... Well, shows? most of
1: us flick through magazines. So, I mean, it
0: is... What's a good magazine?
1: Well, we still love the Bells and the Vogue's and all of those sort of magazines because they tend to publish a range of design projects that aren't just Australian now. But, you know, there's not to say... You know, I used to love looking at American House and Garden... Um, Italian Vogue, Italian Elle magazine, and then the decorative forms of those rather mm. than the fashion forms. But I think, you know, like landscape is part of a global movement as well, so the landscape style that you see in Australia will be something that you might see similarities across those other countries, but it's about individual spatiality of the home.
0: So rather than just like an architect it. and, you know, employing an architect, rather than saying, I want page three of Italian Vogue, page four of, uh, you know, uh, this magazine, that it's a matter of just getting... a. a a nice idea or a general idea, and then look at your own space and then and choose. And, yeah, and then I mean, choose. I think that's
1: the process. When I, when I work with clients, I always ask them to ask them to provide ten images of things they admire. And it's not about just a landscape that might fit in their own backyard. It could be it's about, what? It could be a hotel, it could be a resort, it could be a structure, it could be a collection of plantings that they see on certain pages. And so once I've got that suite of images and I understand what their mindset might be, and we work to putting a landscape that fits in with their back garden, that addresses their own spatial area of their own mm-hmm. home, that it sits within the mindset of
0: landscapes that they admire. What's the most difficult thing about doing a, a, a landscape design for a client?
1: Well, I think the most difficult thing, which is similar to architecture, is preparation of soil. I mean, you need to spend a certain amount of money on soil, but you don't see that money. It's sort of like... like plumbing. Plumbing. It's sort of like foundations and things like that. So there's a certain amount of money that's gobbled up to just make the landscape actually grow in the first place. And I think clients don't realise that maybe 30% of their, of their budget goes in those sort of things that support and maintain the landscape, but don't actually contribute to its aesthetic. Mm.
0: Look, Michael. Thanks so much for coming in today. Welcome, it's been a pl- it's been a pleasure, and look forward to um, speaking to you soon.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Look forward to seeing your garden.
0: So you've been with Stephen Crafty for from Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, and thanks again, Michael. Music